thanks so much for joining Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we welcome Dr. David Nash, who is a founding dean emeritus at the Grandin Professor of Health Policy at Jefferson College of Population Health, and he is also the author of How COVID Crashed the System. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be together. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to talk to you, and you are such a well-known figure in healthcare, but you recently had a chance to be on the other side with a spinal surgery. So why don't you tell us, what was that like, being somebody who has now been in the full spectrum very recently? Yes. Well, first of all, great to be together, and and thanks again, and uh, yeah, wonderful. So I've been at Jefferson uh, for... 33 years on the faculty. So I'm a walking, talking dinosaur, Stephanie, you know, (laughs) and that's what my millennial children think of me anyway. But um, three and a half weeks ago, I had a second spinal fusion surgery at Jefferson. Here's the short story. Um, 20 plus years ago, when I was a lot younger, I had uh, probably congenital spondylolisthesis. Don't ask me to spell it, but for our viewers, so that's um, one vertebral body sliding on top of another. So at L5S1, uh, I had this spondylolisthesis, very high grade, and uh, the symptoms were pretty terrible sciatic pain. And if anybody's ever had sciatic pain, which is super common, you know it really hurts and it travels down your leg. And then eventually, 20 years ago, I ended up, I couldn't walk. Uh, And so I had an L5-S1 fusion. And as it turns out, these things typically sort of last for 10 to 15 years. And then uh, the spine being how it's designed, Uh, Typically, the joint space above the old fusion is trying to work against a fixed thing. And in a nutshell, I ended up having this past summer, I was running and playing tennis and had a new grandchild and was super busy. And uh, very sadly, I ended up having pretty bad sciatic pain again. And I knew all what it meant. And I did all the things you're supposed to do. I had physical therapy, I had an epidural, and then the punchline on October 9th, I had to go. And my hardware was so old that they had to take all the old screws out and put in all new screws. So by this point, I know you're having back pain just thinking about this. Uh, And I outlived the hardware. Yeah. So as the you're bionic now yeah i'm totally (laughs) bionic as the uh neurosurgery chief resident came by in at jefferson and said you know your warranty is up (laughs) and we're gonna take out all your old stuff and put in all new stuff and i'm like oh man uh so that's exactly what happened i went in with four old spinal screws and came out with four brand new ones And I'm smiling now, but this is not for the weak need. I mean, spinal fusion surgery is no fun and much better today than 20 years ago on a host of different levels. Uh, But uh, the good news is this time they made me walk in the hallway 
on post-op day zero, which is a fancy way of saying uh, I was first case on a Monday morning at 5.30 in the morning, you know, in the OR at 7, in the PACU at 10.30, in my hospital bed at 1.30, and 3 o'clock that afternoon, it's like, okay, David, time to walk in the hallway. Ah! So, you know, uh, that's exactly what I did. And I knew in five minutes that my sciatic pain was gone. And so that's a great outcome. And, you know, being a patient in your own place, uh, that's a little odd. So not that every nurse knows who I am, certainly not. But they roll me into anesthesia and the uh, faculty member says, hey, David, what are you doing here? You know, great. <laughs> and so I knew the surgeon and my surgeon, uh, Jim Harrop, uh, who's really well known. I remember when he was a resident. So, you know, Ike's, uh, so the surgery, the anesthesia, I got great care. And we are a spinal cord center. So it's pretty well organized and I had nurse practitioners and case managers. I mean, so many people visited me. I always tell people, bring a pad and a pen to the hospital because you're not going to remember, you know, and sure enough, you know, I had to write it all down because it all was like a blur. Last time I was uh, inpatient for four nights, this time two nights. And that's actually a lot safer for everybody. On the other hand, it was such a rush. It's like, okay, you know, uh, hi, I'm your physical therapist. Hi, I'm your case manager. Hi, I'm going to give you your durable medical equipment and uh, I'm your phys and uh, get out of here. So it was uh, kind of hairy. That's but yeah, I'm lucky to have access to great care, lucky to have great health insurance, right? So got to be thankful for all of this because there's plenty of people with back pain who are never going to have the access and the opportunity that I had, then that's uh, that's pretty sad. It's also a testament to the the other advancements that there must be, because as you said, you're 20 years older, and yet you yes. still had half the recovery time, which is yes, Stephanie. Thanks for reminding me. Right, uh, you, you know, so the care is different, as our listeners surely could appreciate. I mean, 20 years ago, they totally snookered me with. Oxycontin for weeks uh, and, and 10 milligrams of Valium every night. So I don't remember anything from 20 years ago. Um, uh, this time, and they did a iliac crest harvest of bone, which hurt for two years. Uh, this time, <clears throat> I think I had one oxy, uh, some antispasmodic medication, all of which is new. And then cadaver bone and all new screws. And I mean, it was hairy, but uh, that contributed to being able to walk that same afternoon. Wow. And Incredible. just to close on this there, you can't do therapy. You can't do physical therapy for 12 weeks because, you know, you still kind of bolted in. Uh, so the therapy is to get outside and walk. And so I'm quite a sight. I have my cane. I have my back brace. I have my bone stimulator, kind of like a TENS unit. 
and I'm out there walking in the neighborhood. So on Halloween, my wife said I dressed up as a patient. <laughs> Incredible. Glad, glad to hear that you had such an, you know, a positive experience. And 20 years later, you yes, I'm very grateful. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but I'm, I'm truly grateful, grateful to the team, to Dr. Harrop, to the nurses. I will say, Perv, you know, as a doctor who's been on staff for three decades, um, I had two great experiences and to be visited by, you know, people who care a lot about me uh, was was great. And special shout out to uh, my longtime colleague, Gino Murley. Uh, he's been there forever and uh, having him visit. I mean, that's the highlight. That's what you remember. Well, that's what I was going to say, David. I mean, it's an incredible story on a personal level. But then if you think about it from in terms of your professional career and yes. what you in the world, population health, and as, as you're known, I don't know if we introduced you this way or not, but, you know, the world knows you as the father of population health, right. really, for what you've done. Incredible. So do you feel like your experience this time was sort of population health in action? In it's a great question. I think the answer is, is certainly partially yes. I mean, these guys and gals have done a lot of outcomes research. Uh, Dr. Harrop has his own a thousand plus registry of patients. And so he has some pretty good evidence about what to do and what not to do. You know, 20 years ago, it was before the spinal outcomes research trial, the SPORT trial, didn't come out till 2005 or 2006. And Todd Albert, who was my surgeon back then, I mean, he was a part of the SPORT trial, which was the lead article in the New England Journal, but that came out after my surgery. <laughs> so, you know, they, they started really taking this seriously, let's call it almost 20 years ago now, to look at well, what are we really doing here? How long do you need to be in a brace? What's the outcome of physical therapy? What kind of pain meds? What sort of bone cement? So I give these folks a lot of credit for looking in the mirror and saying, you know, now we have some evidence of what we're supposed to do. Uh, that's great. Imagine if we could apply that to everything, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to give credit to mostly the neurosurgeons and orthopedists who do this kind of work. And and we also have seen, on the other hand, you know, huge increase in the number of spinal fusion surgeries every year. Mm -hmm. So we got to be a little thoughtful on patient selection criteria, right? And also, we we got a lot of 80, 85-year-olds getting spinal fusion. I mean, it's tough enough at 68. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to do this in another 20 years. No way. I mean, hopefully not, uh, because, you know, you're not making bone, you're fragile, the recovery's a bear, you're going to lose all your core strength. I mean, I was in great shape uh, all summer, you know, from working out, and, and you got to be because it's all core strength moving forward. Anyway, mm -hmm. I think the sport trial was the beginning of a lot of research and and measurement on what are we doing here every day mm -hmm. and as all of our clinical listeners know so much is religion here you know um and, and meaning this is what we always do and it seems to work so we're just going to keep doing it instead of let's figure it out and I, i'm grateful 
and I'm a beneficiary of let's figure it out. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of any registry moving forward for sure. Excellent. Really great to see science in action. Evidence yeah, you bet. You bet. And uh, I got to get out and walk this afternoon with uh, do try to be a good patient. That's the other thing of her being on the other side of this is, you know, not easy. Yes. And, uh, you know, remembering to take your medication and do what you're told and no, uh, no bending, uh, you know, it's a lot to remember. Mm -hmm. But I think summary, mark it down and ask questions, uh, you, you know. And uh, this time I had, of course, the ID band and everything's computerized and uh, the discharge summary was generated and uh you know it's a totally different world than uh 20 years ago and i'm happy to say pretty much everybody washed his hands <laughs> were you observing and, and oh you bet you bet you know uh, uh, uh last time uh my wife who's an internist slept in a cot next to me uh to make sure uh this time i said honey i think they got the hand washing down this time yeah Excellent. Wow. So, so much progress. In yeah, a nutshell, what a great case study. We should write Yeah, this. we can't discount that hand washing. I mean, that's still pretty basic. And 20 years ago, it was a, you know, sort of a crapshoot who washed his hands. Uh, this time I was paying close attention. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I have I have so many more questions related to this because obviously, you know, we want to talk pop health, but I don't want to go there just yet. Let's okay. let's talk about uh, your book, because I know that's yes. also very timely and time <clears throat> how COVID crashed the system. So yeah. tell us more about, you know, you know, even kind of like how you came up with the title for the book, sure. what you observed, and how do you think we're doing? You know, yeah, well, first of all, thanks for asking. Let me let me show everybody the cool cover. So special thanks to our publisher, Roman and Littlefield in uh, Maryland, who came up with the radar screen and little hard to see airplanes and viruses. So I got to give credit to Charles Wolfworth, my co-author. So here's the short story. Um, you know, look like everybody else, uh, <clears throat> Friday, March 13th, 2020. You know, I, it was a dark day, you know, I came home from work just like everybody else in the world. And I thought, what the hell is this all about? And you know, I was still, you know, pretty much involved in population health, and I had never heard of any of this. And I figured, ah, this will be done in two weeks, and we'll be back to work. And then it, all of a sudden, it was, you know, March, April, May, summer, late summer 2020. And Charles Wolforth, who lives in Princeton, I had known pre-COVID, award-winning science writer. And honestly, you know, he, he called me and he said, look, we, we got to write a book about what's going on. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm so worried. Uh, my wife, we have three children. And as some folks know, one of our three is a physician. And she was on the front lines at a great hospital, but didn't have sufficient PPE. And, and I mean, we were I was terrified. I mean, honestly, it was terror. 
And so when Charles called me, I thought, you know, I'm not sure I could even do this. And he was really wonderful. He said, look, you're an important voice. I'll, I'll write it. You'll tell me and I'll put it into prose. And essentially, that's what we did. So for over a year uh, together, we did a 90-minute Zoom call every week. And I had a great medical student research assistant, uh, Zach Goldberg. And the short story is we we came up with this idea. And, and some of this, uh, I got to give credit to people like uh, John Nance and others. I said, listen, the healthcare system is an airplane that crashed and burned. And we're the NTSB, the guys with the black baseball hats, you know, I'm wearing black, but they got like a black hat says NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board. And we're crawling over the wreckage. There's dead bodies everywhere. It's still smoldering. And we're looking for the black box, right? And the punchline of the book is we already know what's in that black box. For example, poverty, structural racism, underfunding of public health, no guidelines, uh, a system all focused on doing procedures instead of keeping people healthy, <clears throat> a system with no chronic care infrastructure, not enough primary care doctors. I mean, it's a long list. So we know what crashed this plane. And now we got to figure out how to get this plane and planes like it back in the air. And that's the thesis of the book. And so uh, half the book is a pretty sad story of what's broken. And that's kind of the Johnny Downer half. Uh, and the second half of the book is, okay, it's like a phoenix that's arisen. What are we going to do next time? And it's not about the pandemic per se. I, I'm not a COVID virus expert, but... I am an expert on system failure. So this was galactic system failure. Other countries did a far better job than us for all kinds of good reasons. And then, you know, for me, very personally, 1.2 million dead. I mean, so did they die in vain? That's the question. And sadly, as we say in the last chapter, you know, when the dying stops, the forgetting begins. And we learned all this from mostly the Second World War. When the veterans came home in 1945 and 46, they didn't want to talk about what they had seen. And so we got to talk about it. And that's the thesis of the book. And so... Charles is a magician because he took these Zoom calls and all the topics and all the research that we had done and, and turned it into fantastic prose. And then we, you know, back and forth for months of editing the thing. And our editor at Roman and Littlefield came up with a good title, How COVID Crashed the System, and great graphics and research. We have 500 references. I mean, just managing the bibliography and the footnotes. Anyway, it was a, a great team effort. And you know, I've written a bunch of books, but 
this was only my second mass market, as they call it, book. Uh, and then just to end the story about the book, um, typically these sort of publishers, you know, they print two or 3,000 copies and that that's it. And uh, we, we sold, you know, 4,000 copies in the first couple of months. So they had to go back and do a second printing, which was wonderful. All the proceeds go to Jefferson every nickel. Uh, so I'm not lining my pocket and, uh, you know, I'm grateful for the reception. I mean, the book has been used in a bunch of medical schools and business schools. It won the AUPHA award this year, American Association of University Programs and Health Administration. It won a quality and safety award at the University of Jacksonville. So, you know, two awards in the first year, pretty great. So, you know, my job is to get people to listen and read the damn book. And so successful mission that that's really was very gratifying for me. Really there gratifying. are things that when you were writing the book surprised even you being in the system and seeing it implode and hearing the stories that you're totally, kid was totally telling you. Stephanie. Oh, my goodness. You know, uh, the good, the bad and the ugly make your hair stand on end. I mean, what we saw even in our own town, uh, one, you know, we got four medical schools in Philadelphia, two of which are walking distance from one another. And the city government didn't know what the medical schools were doing. And the state government deferred to the city government and public health. And, you know, despite heroic work on the part of everybody at the bedside, the system was a disaster. There was no way to take track of who got a vaccine and who didn't. And, of course, in the minority communities in our city is, you know, 50 plus percent of color, a lot of people said, you know, I'm not getting a vaccine. I don't trust you guys at all. So we had to face that. And then all the misinformation that we were battling during this same time period when we were writing how COVID crashed the system, I got appointed as the first ever, uh, ready for this, the, the chief health advisor to the convention center in Philadelphia. Now, that doesn't sound like any big deal, but um, Boston and Philly are the two top scientific convention centers in America. So I had this other job of being the spokesperson for the convention center to dispel rumors and talk to potential exhibitors and then our hotel industry collapsed so i was in the middle of this you know uh, sort of ecosystem storm of what are we going to do moving forward so to answer your question stephanie you know i i didn't know anything about this business and i had to learn pretty fast and then we won an award the convention bureau won an award for transparency and communication about COVID. And, you know, we hardly remember what the hell happened four years ago, but that whole industry collapsed and all of the workers, most of whom live paycheck to paycheck, had no source of income, right? The hotels were closed. The convention center was closed, had to be redesigned, new HVAC system put in, 
I mean, and I dealt with, uh, you know, communicating all of this. So that was an amazing experience on top of doing the book. But the most amazing part was, you know, all of my colleagues, I'm not at the bedside anymore. I mean, I practiced for 30 years and gave it up just before COVID because I wasn't going to be of any use clinically. And, you know, we had colleagues who were living in a hotel because they were too scared to go home. I mean, unbelievable, right? And not just at Jefferson, but everywhere. And uh, thankfully, my daughter never got sick. Uh, you know, thank God for that. But look, a million plus dead. I mean, it's uh, impossible to get your head around it, right? Combat casualties, both theaters, all of the Second World War is 500,000. Uh, you know, nobody gets this. So when you put it into perspective, I mean, it's a tragic loss. And then it became politicized. And of course, we don't have to talk about Dr. Fauci and all of that. Uh, so we had to battle the prejudices. And we talk about that in the book a little bit. But again, the book is all about system failure. Not so much COVID per se, but you know, COVID shined two spotlights on stuff that we all know, you know, you don't have a primary care doctor. Oh, that's a big surprise. How are you supposed to get care? Oh, you're in private fee-for-service practice and your office is closed? Uh, like, how are you supposed to survive that? Right. Or all of our hospitals, you're not doing any elective work. Well, how are you going to keep the doors open? And not lay people off. So we struggled with with all of that. And here we are, you know, mostly post-COVID. Hopefully we're on more alert to what could happen. And these problems have not gone away. I mean, we're back to the RVU, fill the beds, you know, get back to pre-COVID volume. And, uh, you know, come on. Is that the right model for the future? Well, you know, we could talk about it. I don't think so. I think and there's so many things in what you said that you, it just makes sense. You know, going back to when you said, like, everybody went home. Like, I just said that to my daughter, like, two days ago. She's eight. So, you know, a lot of her life has been dealing with this. Right. And I, I said, like, that was so weird. We all just, like, went home. And, like, it oh. was the right thing to do. But, like, we just... You know, our lives changed on a dime and yeah. everything evolved. But there are so many industries that did <clears throat> find new ways. You know, yes. um, I'm just thinking DoorDash, like every there were so many evolutions and restaurants were constantly confronted with new yep. guidelines to stay yep. open. And hospitals yep. somehow still seem to struggle to get it together when everyone else is adapting, even the technology, mRNA, you know, which was in right. existence before. But really, I mean, they sped that up. We we had some really remarkable things come right. out of COVID. But just what you said at the end, that people are saying, like, we have to get back to pre-COVID levels. We can't do it the same. It's like your book, the The Plane Crashed. We can't take those pieces and put them back together and glue them together. Exactly. The world changed. So we have to say, right. okay, this happened. <clears throat> we acknowledge it. Everyone right. else has moved on. What do we do? So right. is there anyone moving on who's successfully doing this? Or how? Yeah, so, so that's the key question, you know, is are we really going to get to a world of 
whatever you want to call it, value-based care, population-based care. Uh, we coined the phrase, no outcome, no income, 12 years ago, right? We wrote the first textbook of population health more than a decade ago. We opened the first school of population health in 2009, 14 years ago. So, you know, for me, selfishly, we were talking about this way before it was popular. And, you know, back to 2020, like everyone else, you know, I was sitting in my office at home and honestly, people were Googling population health. What the hell is that? And our college and my name was at the bottom of the first page on Google when you Googled population health. So, you know, all of a sudden uh, I was hearing from people literally all over the world. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. So on the one hand, you know, wow, gratifying. On the other hand, you know, gee whiz, we've been talking about this for 10 years. Where were you? So, uh, you know, I had a lot of ambivalence. I mean, frankly, I I was uh, like, okay, well, that's one way to finally, you know, end your career and people getting interested <laughs> that a, a pandemic finally drove people to our front door. I mean, kind of sad, uh, but all right whatever it takes. And now our textbook is in 80 plus schools all around the country. There's at least 15 colleges of population health and 40 medical school departments of population health. I mean, none of this existed even six years ago. So COVID just was, you know, in a weird way, like a rocket booster onto population health. But to answer your great question, Stephanie, you know, where are we going with this crazy marketplace? Well, if we keep spending what we're spending, there'll be no end in sight. You know, we could do more procedures, spinal fusion surgery. Thank goodness it exists. Uh, on, the one, uh, on the one hand, you know, great. If I put my pop health hat on and you just look at our great city, of Philadelphia, if you look at a map of Pennsylvania and you say, okay, let's rank all 67 counties from most healthy to least healthy, I mean, our viewers might be surprised to learn that Philadelphia County, home of Jefferson, and three other big places, ranks dead last, number 67 out of 67. So you know, here we go again. I'm super ambivalent. I'm the beneficiary of great technology, uh, which you could only get at a quaternary place. And on the other hand, our city is, you know, suffering and gun violence and poverty and all the rest, which can't be fixed by the healthcare system. But recognizing what drives, and you could call them the social determinants or Don Berwick calls them the moral determinants of care, which is pretty amazing. You know, that's the future. So if we can't fix these problems and feed people and give them a good job and 
reduce the racism and reach to the community. I mean, a handful of organizations are doing everything they can, including ours. And thinking about the equity question, uh, you know, maybe that's what will come out of COVID. When I first had a chance to meet you in, in April in Philadelphia, it was discussing this very issue of health equity. Exactly. And we had Dr. Latif from Rush University. The CEO. Yes, yes. So for our listeners, Omar Latif and uh, David Ansel, the whole team at Rush and Westside United, I mean, they've done a great job, you know, um, and there are others, but I think in our sort of academic medical center ecosystem, they're one of the major leaders of really putting your money where your mouth is, you know, and engaging the community and, and looking to the community as to what they need and putting them to work <clears throat> and measuring their health. It's, it's a huge job and it takes unbelievably great leadership like the team at Rush and Westside United I'd like to see Westside United at every big place, every big hospital in America, you know, uh, and David Ansel, we got to call him out. I mean, you know, Perv, he's been working on this for more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. You just don't decide. And then tomorrow, you know, get the community to trust you. This, this takes a decade's worth of work. And I'm proud that big places like ours and many others got it you know and we're we we got senior people engaged in health equity we we were not even talking about this even when we opened our college you know 14 years ago there was no such thing so okay maybe that's a positive outcome from the pandemic and we recognize that you can't have value without equity i think that's a key message too right and if everybody's, you know, you, you can't have value without equity. Uh, that's huge. That's and okay, now we need measures to prove it and experts to look at it and what's working and what's not. And surely telehealth is a big part of this. We got to make sure we're doing it right uh, on telehealth. There's a whole social determinant of health industry there's a value-based care consulting industry you know billions of uh private equity and venture money pouring into both of these areas um right now it's more heat than light being generated uh and and you know let's be frank big groups like premier and all the collaboratives great step in the right direction right i mean bringing these organizations together to share like we did in April uh, in Philly and, and, and learning from one another, benchmarking our performance. You know, nobody enjoys looking in the mirror for self-evaluation. You know, most people don't anyway. Uh, so being able to do that and learn from it and share the results, well, that will move the needle. You know, so I'm... I'm optimistic about the future, pretty good for an old guy. And one of the reasons I'm still working is, uh, I mean, I love to be around young people. That's key for me and our postdoc fellows, our medical students, the students in our college, 
you know, house officers, I mean, these are the people I, I enjoy being with more than anybody else. And uh, there's hope for the future, for sure. And in the last um, two chapters, I mean, we talk about changing healthcare education, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, everybody. So uh, I'm hoping we'll build a new kind of uh, professional for the future that it would be great. That's the legacy. It's an amazing story. Thank you so much for being here and sharing. Great all to be together. This. Yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about my surgery too. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you for making it so personal. It's really a thrill to have you. You're here. welcome. You're welcome. And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.